Well, I do say welcome here to Easter. It's the greatest day in history. The greatest day in history. And you know, one of the things I love is I love the gospel narratives or the gospel stories surrounding Easter because we see so much detail of what actually happened. And actually, one of the things I love is it's so like you would expect a story to be. Because what happens when a lot of people tell a story from their perspective? What happens? Like if there's an accident and, and the police officers go to get the reports and you get all these different reports and there's, there's different angles and there's different details and there's different perspectives, right? And, and sometimes it even seems contradictory. And we get all of those perspective and lenses and angles in the Easter story. But at the end of the day, when it comes to the resurrection, that's where they all arrive at the same exact conclusion. And the question we're asking ourselves today is, who knew a resurrection was going to happen? If you've been coming to church for, for a lot of years, you already know the end of the story. It's not going to surprise you. But back then, who knew what was going to happen? And the answer is nobody. Because a resurrection was too inconceivable. A resurrection was too unbelievable. But as we're going to discover today, the Easter narrative is absolutely conceivable and believable. If you're new here today to LifePoint, or, or maybe you haven't been to church in a long time, if, if you were invited by people or you received the, the postcards, well, man, we're so thrilled that you are here with us today. And we want you to know something about what we believe. We do not believe that Jesus rose from the dead simply because the Bible tells me so. It's way better than the Bible tells me so. Now, that works for when you're a kid, right? You know, Jesus loves me, this I know. What, how's it go? Well, the Bible tells me so. That's great when you're a kid, but for rational, thinking, smart adults, there's more for us. We don't believe just because the Bible tells me so. If you're not a Jesus follower this morning, if Maybe you've walked away from Jesus a, a long time ago. Why is it that you should consider joining millions upon millions upon millions of people who believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Why should you consider that? And that's kind of what we're talking about this morning. And it really is the answer simple because Matthew is somebody who saw it. He saw a resurrected Jesus and then he believed. Mark who was a friend of Peter's. Peter saw it. He was an eyewitness. Peter told Mark about it. And then Mark believed, believed the resurrection story. And then there was Luke, who carefully investigated everything surrounding the, the, the crucifixion and the resurrection. And he investigated it, and he talked to Peter and James and John and others, and, and he believed it. And then there was John, another eyewitness, who saw a dead Jesus come back to life, and he believed it. And then this is huge. James actually believed that his brother was the son of God and rose from the dead. And this is something I think I say just about every Easter, but here's the question. What would your brother have to do to convince you that he was the son of God? I mean, seriously, what would he have to do? Because I want you to think about this for a moment. James, 
The brother of Jesus, he's not talked about in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He's not around. Why? Well, James isn't going to be following his delusional brothers who thinks he has a Messiah complex, right? He's not going to do that. So he's not talked about in the Gospels. But then, after the resurrection, when it's most dangerous to be a Jesus follower, because at that point, you were getting arrested. At that point, you were being, you know, beaten and tortured and some people even killed. At that point, James shows up on the scene, and he's actually now a leader in the church. What changed for James? Well, James changed because he saw his dead brother come back to life. You see, that's why we believe. We believe these true, factual, eyewitness accounts about a dead person who is now alive. And then there's another guy, Saul, or we, ought, we know him as Paul. Paul, if you look through your New Testament, he wrote most of the New Testament. Paul was a fully devoted to God Pharisee. I mean, he was sold out for God. He was passionate about God. He loved God. He was the best of the best. He could articulate a relationship with God and articulate a conversation about God better than anybody. And he absolutely hated Jesus and his followers. He believed Jesus to be a heretic, a a false messiah. And because Paul was so passionate about God and, and protecting his religion, he felt justified in hunting down, putting in prison, torturing, and even killing Christians in order to keep his Judaism religion pure. But then, this Jesus hating, Christian hating, religious zealot became a Jesus follower. How's that possible? Simple. He had an encounter with the resurrected, alive, back from the dead, Jesus. So why? Why do we believe it? It's not just because the Bible tells me so, but because Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, James, the Apostle Paul, and many other eyewitnesses, they saw a dead Jesus come back to life again and live again. In other words, this whole story, this whole narrative is not just something written, you know, to inspire people. It's not just something to inspire us, to give us, you know, hope during times of suffering. It's not meant to be a crutch to get us through life. We believe because it's an actual historical event that happened and was recorded by eyewitnesses and recorded by reliable firsthand sources that were connected to the eyewitnesses. Now here's what's great is that those eyewitnesses and those reliable firsthand sources connected to the eyewitnesses, those who saw a resurrected Jesus Later on, they ended up writing about Jesus and his life and his ministry and his death and his resurrection. And later on, these 30, 40 years later, when they wrote these these stories, these documents, those documents were passed around to the churches. And copies were made and more copies were made and more copies were made. And they made their way all throughout the Mediterranean rim. And then... Once Christianity was declared legal about, you know, 300 or so years later, 
the church leaders at the time, they then gathered all of those documents, they bound them together, and collectively they ended up calling them what you and I know as our New Testament. They took the, the Jewish scriptures, put them together with the New Testament. They called those Jewish scriptures, what they call the Jewish scriptures? The Old Testament. And that's where we get our Bible some 300 plus years later. But we believe, not because that book, that do, those documents collected later said so, it's way better than that. It's because those original eyewitnesses saw a dead Jesus come back to life, and then they believed. That's why we take this whole Easter thing seriously. That's why this is the most important day for the, of the year. It's why I love Easter, and if you're a Jesus follower, it's why you ought to love this day more than any other day. This is what your faith is built upon. And I also love Easter because I think it's a great day for those of you who are here this morning who have never trusted Jesus as your Savior, for you to actually consider doing so, for you to actually take that step and join us. Now, the end of this story, this narrative, comes as a complete shock. Who knew back then? We know now, but who knew back then what was going to happen? Who knew? No one. Nobody knew. In fact, everybody thought when Jesus was laid in the tomb, story's over. It's done. It's over. It's time to move on and get back to our lives. So, what's the narrative? How does it go? Let's share that together this morning and go through it. Let me set the context for you. Very important. We talked a little bit about some of this a few weeks ago. You had these first century Jews who are anxiously awaiting their Messiah, their Savior, to come and rescue them and save them because as they interpreted their scripture, they believed their Messiah, or Savior, was coming and he would be this conquering king and he would, he would conquer whatever occupying force was, was ruling over the Jewish people. And in the first century, what what country was ruling over it. Who was it? What empire? The Roman Empire, right? And they believed their Messiah was going to come, their Savior, and set up his kingdom and conquer the other kingdoms, and it would be just like the days of David and Solomon. Well, a few uh, a Savior's Messiahs had arrived on the scene the last 150 years or so turned out to be false messiahs. There was Simon ben Kosiba. There was Judas the Galilean. There was Simon bar Giora, And then there was Simon bar Kokba, also known as the son of the star. But eventually, these messiahs, these saviors, they were all killed. And all of their father, followers went back to the life that they had lived prior. Then one day, a strange man wearing strange clothes eating strange food, walked out of the Jewish de Judean desert and declared a message. Anybody know who the guy was? John the Baptist, right? And his message was simply this, as he said, repent. God is about to do something amazing, something incredible. And the people wondered, are you the Messiah? Are you the Savior? And John said, absolutely not. I am not the Messiah. I'm not the Savior, but I'm preparing the way for the one who is coming. So repent, get right with God so that you'll be ready when he comes. And then, right after that, on the heels of that, Jesus arrives on the scene 
and shows up. John starts telling people about Jesus. That Jesus who you guys all see, he's the one. He's the guy I've been talking about. He's the the Savior. He's the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sins of the world. And at that point, Jesus begins to teach. And Jesus begins to heal and begins to do miracles. And the crowds that followed him grew and grew and grew. Everywhere he went, he had the crowds and he had these giant rallies. And and there's like 10,000 plus people. Speaking of which, uh, at this point, I had this long joke that I I had prepared. And I got to tell you, it's super funny. It's actually like gut-wrenching funny. But after running it by a whole bunch of people, they said, don't tell those jokes. And I think it's hilarious, and that's church, and you're allowed to have a little fun and tie things into modern stuff, but, but I tried to listen to the you know, alleged wisdom of these other people. So at this point, you'd all be laughing hysterically. If you want to know the jokes, come up after me. A bunch of people came up after me, and they were laughing. It was pretty funny, but, but I've decided, in the interest of whatever, to not tell the jokes. So he has these huge crowds, and they're blown away. Because he spoke with authority. He spoke with an authority not even the religious leaders had. In fact, the crowds who gathered around him, they were convinced Jesus is the one. He's our Messiah. He's our Savior. In fact, John wrote this in John chapter 6. He said, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him what? Make him king by force, make him leader, Savior, he withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So people were ready. They thought Jesus was the one. The problem with Jesus gathering all the crowds of people around him is that the religious leaders, they weren't interested in seeing the balance of power shifted. You see, the religious leaders were in a pretty good position. They were making crazy amounts of money off the temple tax from Jewish people all over the world. And so the religious leaders, they were living a pretty good life. It was a comfortable life. It was a wealthy life. It was a rich life. They, they had incredible homes and houses. And so, sure, they had Roman occupiers. Of course, they had that. But they were getting along with the Romans. So life was good for them. But for the crowds, people like you and me, normal, everyday, ordinary people, the Romans made life miserable. And so the crowds, people like you and me, were longing for their Messiah, Savior, to show up. Well, then came the final straw for the religious leaders. They learned that Jesus had raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. He was dead, and Jesus raised him back up. He called out his name. Lazarus came back to life. He ran out of that grave, and the leader said, that's it. Enough of this. They realized they're losing way too much ground with all of the people in the crowd. So the chief priests, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the temple lawyers, and and, and the teachers of the law, they all came together because they had to make a decision. And in John chapter 11, it says this in verse 48. Here is their meeting. They said, listen, if we let him, Jesus, go on like this, everyone will what? What's the word? Everyone will believe in him. You and I say, well, that sounds good. But if everyone believes in Jesus, verse 48, then the Romans will come and they'll take away both our temple, which that's what provides us our wealth, our security, our comfort, and they'll take away our nation. We're the ones in charge of this. So they're going to take away our authority and our influence over all the people. See, they realize in this moment, it's either Jesus or us. 
Jesus or us. So, what do they decide? Verse 53, from that day on, they plotted to take his life. You probably know the story. Uh, they put on a sham trial in the middle of the night. They, they take him over to Caiaphas's house, the high priest. They lock him in the dungeon underneath the house of Caiaphas. If you've been to Israel with me or with another group, then you've gone down into that jail cell, down into that dungeon, down into that pit within the, the dungeon. And, and, and I got to tell you, I've been there. It, it is not a good place to be. And Jesus was there in that hole in complete darkness. He was taken out of that hole. He was walked across town to the fortress Antonia. He went over there because that's where the Roman priest prefect Pilate was, and they took him before Pilate, and they tried to convince Pilate that Jesus was a threat to Rome because he claimed to be a king. Pilate knew if these crowds keep getting whipped up, and they cause a revolt of some sorts, my head's on the chopping block because his number one goal was to keep the peace between Rome and the local people. You know, the whole Roman peace, Pax Romana. And so Pilate allowed himself to be convinced that he needed to crucify Jesus. And at that point, the story just slows down. And you get all these details about the crucifixion and eventually about the resurrection. And as we continue on in this narrative, this is something very important for us to think about, especially if you're here today, maybe you were invited by somebody. If you're here today, maybe you walked away from faith. Maybe you've never really fully believed, or maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking about it, and you've been thinking, I'm about ready to believe. Here's what I want you to consider. And if you're a believer in Jesus, this is important to strengthen your faith and also to share with others. Here's what I want you to think about. If you're going to be the one who writes this account, this story that we're talking about, if you're going to write it some 30 or 40 years after the fact, how, if you're the writer, how are you going to make yourself look? My thought is you're going to make yourself look pretty good, right? You're going to tell the story in such a way that makes you look like a courageous disciple, like a faith-filled disciple, like somebody who is actually capable of leading a movement. But when you read all four of the gospel accounts, the followers of Jesus are uh, presented as scared, as insecure, as people who are only looking out for themselves. They look like cowards. Matthew and John, they didn't paint themselves as courageous heroes, but as they really were, cowards. You read Mark's gospel, and Mark wrote it after talking directly with Peter. It's really Peter's gospel that Mark wrote. And if you read about Peter and Mark's gospel, how does Peter look? It tells us that after Jesus was arrested, that three times Peter was confronted by people who said, hey, you know Jesus, you're one of his, you're one of his followers. And three times he denied even knowing Jesus. As important as Peter was to that early church, don't you think you would have left that part out? Skip over that part of the story. What about Luke's account? Luke carefully investigated everything. He talked to everybody, all the eyewitnesses. He concluded what all the other gospels concluded. There wasn't a hero among them. In fact, when Jesus was arrested, the Bible talks about how they all ran for their lives. 
One person actually, as he started to run away, a guard grabbed him and held on to his clothes, but he kept running, and the clothes were torn off him, and it said that he ran away naked. And I want you to think about that for a moment. That's completely humiliating. Why would you include that in the story? Unless it was true. Unless it actually happened. And then you have these disciples who didn't even attend the funeral or the burial. Let me say something about the burial that I think is a little bit fascinating. Who buried Jesus? Did his 12 apostles bury Jesus? What's the answer? No. It was two random guys. It was a rich guy who was so afraid of the Jews, he kept his faith in Jesus private. It was a, it was a Pharisee who, who buried him. I'm telling you, you can't make this kind of stuff up. The only reason you would write all these details into the story is if this is the way it happened to a T, if this is exactly how it happened. In fact, you continue on in this story and There's a conversation these religious leaders have with the Pharisees after Jesus has died. In Matthew 27, Matthew says this. They went to the religious leader, they went to to Pilate, and they said this. Give the order for the tomb of Jesus to be made secure until the third day. Why? Otherwise, his disciples might come and steal the body and tell the people that he's been risen from the dead. Now, I want you to think about the flawed logic of that. Here's 12 guys who weren't willing to stand with Jesus. They ran away. If they weren't willing to stand with Jesus, if they weren't willing to die for Jesus while he was alive, why all of a sudden would they risk their lives now that he's dead, if he's still dead? Why would they risk their lives to keep some lie alive and say he's been resurrected and just steal the body? Because if they went down that path, they know what's coming for them. They get arrested. They get beat, whipped, tortured, and crucified. So they would never steal the body. So what do we have in this narrative? You have nervous religious leaders who want to make sure no one tries to provoke anything by stealing Jesus' body and make up some story. You have petrified disciples who've ran away scared, thinking they're next, they're hiding out. You have despondent women who had hoped upon hope that Jesus would change everything. And you have confused Roman soldiers wondering, why in the world are we guarding the tomb of a dead guy whose, whose followers are completely complete cowards? They ain't coming around. They're not showing up. Why are we wasting our time here? Let me tell you what we have. What we don't have, because that's the story, what we don't have is anybody anticipating or expecting a resurrection. Not a single person in the gospel narratives expected a resurrection. When Jesus died, the movement died with him just like all the previous false messiahs. The story that I just shared with you that many of us know we've heard over for years and years and years, this story is written exactly like you would expect it to be, be, right? It's completely believable up to this point. This will be the story of just like all the other false messiahs at this point. And yet here we are. And you and I are sitting here together today, 2,000 years later. People from every continent are gathered together celebrating Jesus. Why? Why? Well, we're not here because somebody stole a body like the Pharisees worried about. 
We're not here just because someone died on a cross. Think about that. Thousands upon thousands of people died on crosses. It was the Romans' best way for execution. We're not here because someone gave a series of amazing talks or lectures that were gathered together to put in literature to inspire people through the generations. We're not here because of any of that. We're here because when a group of women went to a tomb to properly finish burying the body of Jesus, when they went there, they found no body. That doesn't make sense. Of course there would be a body. That's why we came here. That's why we have all these spices. And this brings us to the very issue of Easter. It's the very thing that every single person here should wrestle with. That every single skeptic should wrestle with. If you're here this morning, maybe at some point you abandon Christianity. That you should wrestle with. And it's simply this. Nobody expected no body. Who knew there would be no body? No one knew. No one knew there would be no body. The story ends in a way that nobody expected, nobody predicted, nobody could have imagined that Jesus actually died, and then he came back to life, and he rose from the dead. Nobody expected that. You might know what happened after that resurrection. What happened next was the exclamation point, the punctuation on the story. Those very same men who ran away scared for their lives and went and hid, who wouldn't even show up for the burial. Those very same despondent women who showed up to finish burying Jesus' body properly. Those same, very same men and women a few days later, not, not years later, not 10 years later, not a decade later, not after all the eyewitnesses died, but a few days later, those eyewitnesses, they walked out boldly and courageously all of a sudden, walked into the center of Israel, into the center of Jerusalem, within walking distance of the tomb, by the way, And now with a boldness and a courage and a confidence that they didn't have before, they said to the very people who witnessed the crucifixion of Jesus, you all killed Jesus, but God raised him to life. He raised him from the dead. We're eyewitness of of this. We've seen it. Now you all need to say you're sorry for what you did. We saw it. You killed him. So say you're sorry. Repent of your sins. And the book of Acts tells us that thousands upon thousands of people within weeks of the resurrection, they repented and they embraced Jesus as their Savior because of the reliable testimony of the eyewitnesses. That's how the story transpired. And the reason that you and I are here this morning, the reason we believe 2,000 years later isn't just because Jesus died on a cross, because he was raised from the dead. He was seen by eyewitnesses who went and then with boldness proclaimed that message. Most of them ended up dying for that message that they knew to be true. They didn't just end up dying for something they believed in. Don't people do that all the time? People will die for a cause they believe in. 
People do that. They didn't die for a cause they believed in. They died because of something they saw. They were eyewitnesses too. Last thing, about 25 or so years later, this Jesus movement, it's off and running, and central to the message of Jesus was what we're talking about today, the story of the resurrection of Jesus. Paul, remember I mentioned him earlier, the guy Paul or Saul, the guy who tried to eliminate the Jesus movement, he writes something to the Christians in Corinth that I think is powerful for us. You can turn in your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, and he says this in verse 1. He says, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which I received and on which you have taken your sand. This is the core of what we believe. Verse 3, for what I received, I passed on to you. Within 25 years of the resurrection, people are already writing down the details of what happened. It's being passed on. As of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried. He wasn't thrown in a pit. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And here it comes. And that he appeared. Are you ready for this? The dead guy came back to life. The man who was dead and laid in a tomb rose from the dead, and he appeared to whom? First of all, it says to Cephas. Cephas is Peter. And then to the 12, the 12 apostles. Verse 6, after that, he appeared to more than what? I want to say this out loud. To how many people? To more than? 500 people at one time. 500 people aren't going to make this up. 500 people at one time. Of brothers and sisters at the same time, most of who are still living, though some have fallen asleep. In other words, I know it's hard to believe. Who knew he'd die and come back to life? But Paul says we can all take a trip to the Holy Land. We can all go there. You can ask Pastor Chris who'll lead the trip, right? You can head over there and you can see with your own eyes. You don't just have to believe me. There's people who are actually eyewitnesses. They're still alive. You can go talk to them. Verse 7, then he appeared, Jesus, to James. Remember, James wasn't around in the Gospels. He's not going to believe his delusional, wannabe, Messiah complex brother, right? But he appeared to James, alive. And then he appeared to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me as one abnormally born. Why did Paul describe himself that way? Because I'm the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle. Why, Paul? Why don't you deserve to be called an apostle? Because I actually persecuted the church of God. I arrested them, and I tortured them, and I made sure they were put to death. And the idea that God allows me to be an apostle, to proclaim this factual message of Jesus' death and resurrection that's been seen by hundreds and hundreds of people, man, that's so humbling for me. And I wake up every single day, and I can't believe that I actually get to be a part of this message. And that, church, is the Easter story. And here's why it's significant for you and me. If you're a Jesus follower and we talk about this story, you need to understand that your faith is not in vain. You believe in something that actually happened, that's actually true. It's not, not just a belief in something far out there in a, in a galaxy far, far away. You believe something that actually happened. You know what else it means if you're a Jesus follower? It means your faithfulness to God is not in vain. 
that every time you come to church and you serve God, every single time you give to God or to God's causes around the world, every time you serve God outside of these walls, every time you you care for orphans and widows and the marginalized in society, every time you do anything in the name of Jesus, your faithfulness is not in vain. And then there's some of you here this morning. You're here, and you're curious, and you've been considering giving your life over to Jesus, and you've been considering that because you're coming to the place where you finally understand and recognize he loves you so much, and he wants to have a relationship with you. It means that your consideration of the Christian faith is not in vain, and we want to invite you this morning to place your faith in Jesus Christ. I'm asking you to consider it, not because the Bible tells me so, but because the Easter narrative is totally believable based on eyewitnesses, the eyewitnesses' accounts that have been preserved for us. It's why millions upon millions upon millions have given credit to a living Savior for changing their lives, And if you're here this morning and you've never done that, I want to invite you right now to place all of your trust in Jesus as your Savior.